I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And a quick reminder that you can follow us at Pod. And by the way, if you've got any questions, thoughts, ideas you want to share, tweet right at us. Now let's get on with the show. The Justice Department was going after Fred Trump and Donald Trump for not letting blacks in their housing. Rather than making a deal, rather than admitting guilt, Roy said to Trump, you need to go full bore after the Justice Department. Roy Cohn was very clear what to do. Attack. Don't settle. Don't apologize. Attack. Roy would always be for an offensive strategy. Those are the rules of war. Uh, You don't fight on the other guy's ground. You define what the debate is going to be about. I think Donald learned that from Roy. I learned that from Roy. Those are excerpts from a fascinating new documentary, Where's My Roy Cohen? A film that tells a lot about the state of American politics in 2019. It explores the life and tumultuous times of one of the most divisive and to many repellent figures of the post-World War II era. Roy Cohen was the chief counsel to Senator Joseph McCarthy during the anti-communist witch hunts of the 1950s. He later became one of the most powerful and feared lawyers in New York, the consigliere to mafia bosses and crooked pals of all stripes. But from today's perspective, he is best remembered for something else. He was, for years, the attorney and mentor to an up-and-coming real estate developer named Donald Trump. It was Cohn who guided Trump through his early legal battles with the Justice Department, tutoring him on how he should never admit any wrongdoing and instead put his accusers on trial with whatever you can throw at them. They were Cohn's ruthless rules of war, lessons that Trump learned well. We'll talk to Matt Turnauer, the filmmaker who made Where's My Roy Cohen, and the reasons its themes are eerily relevant to today's battle over impeachment on this episode of Buried Treasure. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true, but the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. We now have with us Matt Turnauer, the filmmaker who directed Where's My Roy Cohen. Matt, welcome to Buried Treasure and Skullduggery. Thank you. So I got to say, you know, this seemed to me one of the most prescient documentaries I could imagine. I don't know how long it took you to research and do this film, but coming out now in the middle of the impeachment battle and seeing in many ways, you know, Roy Cohen's playbook playing out right in front of us uh, is a pretty strange sight to see. Yeah, you know, funny story. I thought about making the film during the 2016 election because I was making another movie about Studio 54, the the disco. And Roy Cohn was not only a frequent tender of Studio 54, but he was the lawyer for it. So he's all over the footage of the demise of that nightclub. It it went down in flames and a skimming and... uh, income tax evasion scandal. And he did a pretty bad job defending the owners, in fact. But I kept putting the idea out of my head because I thought, well, Hillary's going to win. 
And the only reason to make a Roy Cohn documentary is to explain the relationship between Roy Cohn and Donald Trump. Well, when Trump won, I started making the movie the next day, basically, because I understood enough, even before I did the deep dive research, that if you wanted to understand Trump, you had to look at Roy Cohn. People I interviewed who knew both of the guys, knew both men in the uh, 70s and 80s, said that Donald Trump is Roy Cohn. He swallowed Roy Cohn whole. And I hate to quote Scaramucci, but he did have a good line, which is, uh, if Joe McCarthy and Roy Cohn had a baby, that baby is Donald Trump. <laughs> that, that is a good line. And I should point out in the uh, intro, we, in which we played a couple of excerpts from the movie, one also hears, talking about prescience, the voice of one Roger Stone, who is, as we speak, on trial in a federal courtroom for uh, lying and obstruction. And uh, he does factor into this story as well. And un- undoubtedly, Roger Stone is using has been using the same tactics against uh, the Justice Department as Roy Cohn and, and Donald Trump has, uh, and certainly wasn't going to plea bargain in this case. Matt, you mentioned uh, Studio 54, and I want to get to that part of uh, Roy Cohn's life later on, because it's fascinating to me the way he was able to kind of navigate you know, these different worlds, the decadent uh, New York of the 1980s and the Reagan White House. But can you tell us how you got the name for the movie? Because I think it's an interesting story. It's, it's something that we actually talked about on Skullduggery when uh, the New York Times first quoted uh, Donald Trump saying, where's my Roy Cohen? But you must have seen that and said, that's my title. Yes. Uh, titles are hard. So I, I never really settle on the title until basically I have to approve the movie poster. But I found this title that day that the Times reported on this meeting, I guess, in the White House where Trump's complaining that Jeff Sessions won't unrecuse himself. And Trump blurts out, where's my Roy Cohn? Instant title. And it, I think it's the first time a sitting president has named a movie. So there's another <laughs> strange distinction here. Uh, but, Congratulations on that. Yeah. Yes, I, I hate to give him any credit, to be honest with you. But, uh, you know, what he's saying there is profound and very, very disturbing. And it's also, by the way, as a footnote, a crazy world we live in where Jeff Sessions and John Bolton are the great heroes of what is happening politically in this country. <laughs> Uh, but this was the case, it turned out, when Sessions wouldn't unrecuse. And Trump's saying, in effect, where's my mob lawyer? Where's my fixer at the head of the Justice Department? Which, as the press reports, and Mike, you talk about on MSNBC on a daily, if not weekly basis, is a great misconstruing of the way that the government is uh, set up and supposed to function. Uh, well, let's let's just take a step back and um, go through for our listeners who was Roy Cohen, what his uh, early prominence was in the 1950s, how he first came on the public radar screen, which you go over in the movie in great depth. Yes, there's still a lot surprising about Cohen's resume and his biography, really, even if you know who he is. And most people know who he is from Angels in America these days because he's a, a big character in that Pulitzer Prize winning play by Tony Kushner. Cohn comes from a very wealthy Jewish family in New York City. They, the array of companies his family controlled is incredible. They had Lionel Trains. 
Van Hughes and Shirts, which was the biggest shirt company at the time, a bank called Bank of the United States, which was the leading Jewish bank of the period, and uh, Q-tips, shockingly. Uh, one of his uncles invented the Q-tip. So he's very well <laughs> set up uh, as this young, very bright, and no one could take this away from him, as, as venal a character as he turns out to be. And I would even say he turns out to be a modern Machiavelli, having created a president from beyond the grave. You can't deny that Cohn was probably a genius. And he graduates from law school, Columbia in this case. He's still too young to take the bar. He whizzed through law school so fast. And he it comes from a family with a lot of political connections. His father is a judge and very tied into the uh, po democratic political machine in New York City. And Cohn learns all of his politics at the knee of the machine politician father that he has, who really attained his position because of the uh, financial influence of uh, Roy Cohn's mother's family. All the money was on, on the mother's side, and that's the Marcus family. So he's very well positioned to shoot to the top of the legal profession in the 1950s when he's in his early 20s. And he does that by becoming an assistant prosecutor on the most high profile case of the time, which was the Rosenberg spy case. The Justice Department very purposefully appointed only Jewish prosecutors and a Jewish judge to that case because they didn't want to be accused of anti-Semitism. And Cohn's one of these prosecutors, but he also has a really ignoble role in that case because he has ex parte communications with Judge Irving Kaufman and Cohn, for whatever reason, persuades Kaufman to sentence Ethel Rosenberg, who was innocent of any espionage charges to the electric chair. So at the age of 23, Roy Cohn makes his mark in a very dark way and a very memorable way. And the Rosenberg executions leave a really open wound in the Jewish community and on the left side of the political ledger that many people have never gotten over. That was his first. You know, um, I have to say, it just, is, um, it, Matt, it is shocking that in essentially his first case, he is having an ex parte conversation with a judge in which he, he, he lobbies the judge uh, to give someone the death sentence. Did that, when did that uh, come out? And was there, uh, were there any repercussions at all for that? I think it was whispered about at the time. You know, Irving Kaufman, the judge, lived in the same apartment building on Park Avenue as Cohn's parents. It's a very small world. And I, I'm not saying that this was uh, limited to the upper class Jewish legal world of New York, but it's really about the favor bank. And I think in later years, you can view Roy Cohn as the CEO of the favor bank, which is what made politics turn in that period. This was the political clubhouse period and uh, the nexus between politics, money, society and the legal system was a very vital one. And Cohn really was always at the center. And he of was a, a fixer from the very beginning. Yes. I mean, if you know about his biography, you realize that he went to the Tony Horace Mann prep school in New York, but he made a bribe to help a teacher get out of a traffic ticket when he was 14 years old. So he's a combination of um, well-educated, upper-class, 
very comfortable in the corridors of power, even at a, as a kid. But he's also kind of like a has a street smart thug quality about him. You know, uh, it is, um, we may get to this later, but you do play uh, excerpts from a uh, really interesting debate that Roy Cohen had in the 1970s with Gore Vidal. And um, I watched the full, that full interview after seeing it in the film. And there's a passage where Cohen is asked during that debate if he has regrets about anything. And they they're mainly were focusing at that point on his uh, role as chief counsel to McCarthy. And he does say, well, maybe I do have some regrets about what I did as a prosecutor. Now, at that point, of course, he's a prominent defense lawyer who goes after the government, who, uh, you know, uh, attacks their cases any way he can. But I did find it interesting that, you know, he may have some small part of him may have had some regrets about the way he handled the Rosenberg case. Although I should also add, just in the interest of fairness, it is true that the evidence against Ethel was pretty thin, but it was pretty compelling against Rosenberg himself. And I think most scholars today would agree that he was guilty of the charges that he was accused of uh, being a spy for the Russians. Yes. And when they opened the Stasi archives, I believe it was Stasi, they found uh, evidence that uh, confirmed that Julius was guilty. However, in terms of proportionality, no uh, spies have been executed for a federal charge in the United States, I believe, since the Civil War. This was a very, very outsized punishment. And the level of secret that they leaked to the Russians was not that great, actually. It was uh, about a particular element of a hydrogen bomb, I believe. And the Russians had this information anyway. So when you really boiled it down, it was uh, out of proportion. And in any event, Cohn pushed for the execution of an innocent woman, an innocent, an innocent Jewish woman. I've got rare footage in the film of a protest in Union Square on the eve of the Rosenberg's executions, where thousands and thousands, seemingly tens of thousands of people took to the streets to protest the perceived injustice of this execution that Roy Cohn was behind, and it turned violent. And I find it really, really gut-wrenching and also resident uh, for today because I ask myself frequently as foundational principle of the republic gets uh, flouted and uh, eroded by the Trump administration, why aren't people in the streets? Yeah. Let's talk about uh, the uh, McCarthy uh, hearings, which I think for those people who know anything about Roy Cohn, know that dark chapter in his career what was his role? How effective was he? And how did he conduct himself? So as we've said, by the time he's 23, he's deeply involved in the Rosenberg case. And then he goes right on to the McCarthy case, uh, or rather the McCarthy sub Senate subcommittee, where he becomes chief counsel to Joseph McCarthy in this, what we would now call the McCarthy period. But at that time, uh, Joseph McCarthy was just the leading light of the witch hunting that was going on. He was very known for, and famous at the time, for being at McCarthy's elbow during these hearings and whispering conspiratorially into Joseph McCarthy's ear, which made him a public Svengali and demagogue whisperer, literally, and the chief one at the time. 
he had the backing of J. Edgar Hoover, who many believe got him or, or gunned for him to get that post. And McCarthy wasn't really a sharp tool in the tool chest. He was uh, a, a clever, crafty, demagogic politician who liked the limelight, but he needed a Roy Cohn to tell him what to do and what to say frequently. And the witch hunt was then, not only about communists. They were also hunting homosexuals. And that obviously is, uh, we haven't discussed this yet, but that is a key part of, of the, the Cohn story and, and biography, which is that he was a closeted gay man. And in fact, he has a relationship during this period that leads to the downfall of, of Joseph McCarthy. So why don't you tell that story and what impact his uh, homosexuality that he was hid until the very end of his life had on his uh, the development of, of his character and, and, and who he became. Yes, well, the irony and hypocrisy of this episode really, I think, is world class. Cohn is gay. He's not out at the time, uh, which, by the way, I, you know, as a gay guy myself, I don't fault someone in the 1950s who wanted to be a lawyer not coming out of the closet and proclaiming his sexuality. It wasn't done at the time, and there was no such thing as an out gay attorney in the early 1950s or even for many years after that. The problem is the hypocrisy. Cohn with McCarthy touch off something called the Lavender Scare, where they are not only actively going after suspected communists in the government and the armed forces, but they're also going after gay people and ruining people's lives. There were reported cases of suicide because they were threatening to out a lot of people uh, claiming that they were not good security risks because they were pen potentially blackmailable. Cohen himself, of course, is in the same situation, and J. Edgar Hoover himself is in the same situation. So this original sin of hypocrisy along the lines of sexuality is horrendous, and it's something that Cohen never confronts head-on uh, for the rest of his life. At the time, McCarthy himself, who was a bachelor— uh, a permanent bachelor is what people said, although McCarthy eventually did marry uh, one of his assistants, which is, you know, raised suspicions as well. And there was an adopted baby and all of these trappings that, again, caused people to speculate that he himself was gay. So you, what you had were whisperings about the leading characters in the McCarthy witch hunt drama being part of a secret homosexual cabal, which added to the conspiratorial nature of the whole affair. It shook down in the mid-50s into something that we know now as the Army McCarthy hearings. But I think a lot of people don't realize that Roy Cohn was really the centerpiece character of those hearings. They were touched off when a protege of Cohn's named G. David Shine, who was a tall, blonde, handsome scion of a hotel family, was drafted into the army during the Korean War as a private. Cohn had gotten Shine a seat on the McCarthy Investigations Committee. And Cohn, being a string puller, wanted to get this guy Shine, who was suspected to be a love interest of his, a promotion. Now, the promotion he requested from the Secretary of the Army, and you know, Cohn was a, a wheeler dealer, so he's Joseph McCarthy's chief counsel, but he just calls the Secretary of the Army and basically tries to, uh, to extort a promotion for his friend out of him. And he says, I want Shine to be a general. Now, promotions from private to general, as far as I know, are not very common in the yeah. period. 
Uh, and he says, furthermore, I want him in a posting, and the posting's to be in Manhattan, and it's to be in the penthouse of the Waldorf Astoria. Do you hear me, Mr. Secretary? The secretary told him to, you know, basically flip off. Cohen then brings this back to McCarthy and says, we're going to go after the army. We're going to wreck the army, was his phrase. And that precipitated the immortal army McCarthy hearings, where McCarthy's response with Cohen at his side was to accuse the army of having been infiltrated by communists and a cabal of, yes, homosexuals who were bad security risks and were infiltrating uh, a major branch of the armed forces. This was a travesty, of course. But then uh, Senate Majority Leader Lyndon Johnson arranged for television cameras to be brought into this more than one month uh, public hearing. And it ended up having an unintended effect, which was discrediting Joseph McCarthy in one of the greatest moments in the history of television still to this day, which many of your listeners know about. And that's when the attorney for the army, Joseph Welch, says the immortal words, at long last, have you no sense of decency, sir, to McCarthy. And it has the effect of bringing the whole McCarthy machine crashing down to earth. So Cohen leaves Washington in pretty much disgrace, you know, the, the, to be uh, associated with McCarthy. Uh, McCarthy is, of course, censored by the Senate. He largely you know, drops off the radar screen as a factor in American political life. But Cohen reemerges in New York as a defense lawyer and remarkably has a successful career as one. How did he go from the disgraced figure in the McCarthy, Army McCarthy hearings to being a prominent defense lawyer in New York legal circles? Well, you're exactly right. Both of their reputations were ruined, McCarthy and Cohen, by the Army McCarthy hearings. McCarthy died of uh, a liver failure from uh, alcoholism a few years later, and he had ended up being censured by the Senate. Cohen does something that will be very familiar to anyone paying attention to politics today. He declares victory after having been defeated in this way, moves back to New York City, where he's got a great network thanks to his powerful family, and sets himself up as an attorney. His father gives him a banquet at the Waldorf Astoria to welcome him home. And New York society, that nexus of politics, money, social influence, which really makes the world turn in New York City, embraces Cohn, takes him up as a fixer and a lawyer, he knows how to manipulate the media. It's really his great specialty. He has the ear of J. Edgar Hoover, but all of the important columnists of the time, including Walter Winchell, who was like a one-man version of Fox News in, in the period, and a man named George Sokolsky, who was a less remembered version of Walter Winchell. And he has enormous success. And eventually, he starts to represent the dawns of the five families of the mafia and has a huge reputation as a uh, defense attorney for organized crime. Now, he himself begins to touch organized crime and various forms of, uh, I'll use the word, skullduggery, <laughs> uh, which perfectly describes it. Please and do. <laughs> he, he, Please. Becomes, he becomes the person who sits on the bridge between the illegitimate power structures of the period and the legitimate world of politics. Skullduggery is the perfect epithet for it, actually. <laughs> 
That said, I want to take a little uh, slight detour here because I want to touch on the feud he had had starting in the 1950s with Bobby Kennedy, who was himself for a while a counsel to the uh, McCarthy committee. And then, of course, after John Kennedy is elected president, Bobby becomes attorney general and he goes after Roy Cohen. He has his U.S. attorney in New York, Robert Morgenthau, indict him on multiple occasions. And remarkably, Cohen gets off at one point representing himself uh, before the jury. Yes, you outlined it very well. The vendetta between Bobby Kennedy and Roy Cohn was very public and it involved Robert Morgenthau, who was actively pursuing Cohn on three very famous public indictments that went down in the 1960s. The origin of the Bobby Kennedy-Roy Cohn feud comes from the time when uh, Bobby wanted to be chief counsel to Joseph McCarthy and uh, Joe Kennedy, his father, who is a very influential man, of course, was pushing for that. And through his own uh, network of influential mentors, Cohn actually took the, the, uh, the first chair and Bobby kind of skulked off in a, in a huff. And uh, the relationship continued to sour over the years as Bobby uh, Kennedy really took a different path, which was, uh, I believe, a more enlightened path. He became a much more liberal figure and uh, was fighting for uh, civil rights and uh, liberal causes in the uh, 60s. And Cohn took the path of darkness, which I think uh, was inspired by his uh, demagogic mentor, McCarthy. And uh, he has this very successful career, but at the elbow, not of uh, demagogic senators, but at the elbow of mafia dons. Bobby Kennedy. Although, uh, although just a, a little, you know, uh, look, we we just did a uh, another show in which we had Jack Goldsmith talking about his book about Jimmy Hoffa and uh, making it pretty clear that Kennedy, for all his, uh, you know, although he's a hero to so many because of his uh, passion for civil rights and what he became later in life, used, you know, had these vendettas and used the powers of the Justice Department to go after people who he uh, despised. Jimmy Hoffa was one of them and Roy Cohen was another. And, uh, you know, I got to say the results of those prosecutions of Roy Cohen don't look all that well for Bobby Kennedy and Robert Morgenthau today. Yes. Well, I, you know, I actually agree with your point that Bobby Kennedy is uh, a sanctified figure who has a very mixed past. And I think that's something that is very worth talking about. Having looked at the Morgenthau indictments of Cohn, uh, there was a lot of wrongdoing there. And Morgenthau, who was alive when I was finishing the film uh, and died, I think, at more than 100 uh, a few months ago, refused to speak to me. I had three emissaries go to him who were very close to he and his wife, and he just wouldn't talk about it. Uh, which I thought was a real loss for the record, because I'd like to know more about uh, what was behind and what was motivating his uh, his attacks. Clearly, he was very close to Bobby Kennedy, and there was a fix-in. But I have no doubt that Roy Cohn was guilty of all the things they charged them with. So, Matt, you talked about how Roy Cohn was accepted and even embraced by 
elite society in New York. T- tell us about that period and then how he gets to know uh, Donald Trump. So he's a prominent mafia attorney. He even gets John Gotti off of a murder rap. Uh, the murder was committed in public. It was a public shooting. And he gets a plea bargain sentence for Gotti, which makes him very popular with the other mafiosi. And he's also a divorce attorney. But more than that, he's really a fixer. And again, this resonates with today because, you know, the press politely calls Rudolph Giuliani President Trump's personal attorney, but he's not really practicing law. He's a fixer. And uh, this is right out of the Roy Cohn playbook. And it has its origins in a moment in the 1970s when young, not yet successful, famous Donald Trump, who's got some money to play with given to him by his very wealthy father, a Queens real estate developer, meets Roy Cohn at a place called La Club, which was sort of like a rich man's uh, disco on the east side of Manhattan. And at this moment, Trump and his father, Fred Trump, are being pursued by the Justice Department for housing discrimination in Queens. And they're guilty of it. Uh, They were taking applications for apartments from people who were not white, uh, putting the letter C on the applications, which was for colored, and putting them in a bottom drawer of some desk somewhere and just not taking anyone who wasn't white into the uh, into the Trump complexes. Justice Department went after them. Cohn is asked by Trump to uh, defend he and his father. He does something which turned out to be brilliant. Uh, he sues, countersues the government for $100 million. The counterclaim was soon dismissed, but it had the effect of throwing the government off balance. And there was a, uh, a settlement with no admission of guilt, which Cohn then cast as a victory. Now, you know who does this almost on a daily basis. And he did it all through the 2016 election, even alluding to that case when uh, Hillary Clinton tried to assail him with it. He said that he it was settled and he was not guilty. So that's the Cohn playbook. And uh, that's how Cohn and Trump got started. And then it built from there. And how close were they? I believe they talked regularly. Uh, they met regularly. They dined regularly. Tell us a little bit about how about that relationship and how tight they became. They became very close. I think that Cohn saw Trump as his protege. There is a strange, unspoken, psychosexual dynamic to it. G. David Shine, who was the tall, blonde, rich boy I mentioned earlier, who was Cohn's obsession that drove him to do irrational things, such as try to blackmail the army, bears a passing resemblance to the young Donald Trump. So if you wanted to look at it through that lens, you would say that Cohn had a type, and it was tall, blonde, and rich, and Trump fit that. So you know, I'm not saying that anything ever happened. I, I, I don't think it did. But I think that there was something motivating this uh, mentor-mentee relationship. But at the time, Cohn was at the height of his power, soon to begin to lose it as the 70s wore on. And he was very useful to a Donald Trump who needed entree into the very complex world of Manhattan society in this nexus plexus I keep alluding to where money, politics, power, and high society meet. 
And if you don't know that about New York City, if you've never seen it up close, it's all important, even still to this day. And Cohn was really the person who held the keys to, held the keys to uh, all of those precincts. And Trump knew that. And he, he really uh, functioned as a guide, introducing Trump. And why he was motivated to do so is unclear. I think, as I said, there probably was even if it was subconscious, a sort of psychosexual element to it. But Cohen loved a protege. Roger Stone was another one of his protégés. He loved a co-conspirator. And uh, he also loved gossip. And I think he liked the idea of being the puppet master of this young, swashbuckling tyro who was kind of making a mark in New York at the time. And that man was Donald Trump. There's a passage in the film, it was an interview on NBC News that Linda Ellerby conducted in the 70s that never aired, where Cohn talks about Trump, and he talks about him in these glowing, uh, seemingly almost sexualized way. I mean, he's so excited to talk about this not very well-known young man named Trump. And he, in a way, Nostradamus-like, predicts he's going to be president. He says something to the effect of, Donald Trump is a meteor rising from New York who's going to go on one day to touch every part of this country and major parts of the world. So if you, if you put that through a, a kind of Nostradamus-like crystal ball, it's almost as if Cohen in the 70s is predicting that Trump is going to be much more important and much more significant a character than, than we all could have realized even up to uh, three years ago. And of course, he loved playing the sort of puppeteer. Uh, you also uh, talk in the movie about how uh, he lobbied Rupert Murdoch to endorse Ronald Reagan uh, when he was running for president. Uh, that was a actually a very key endorsement for him. We have two sources talking about the Murdoch relationship and its uh, effect on the Reagan campaign of 1980. Roger Stone's one of them. Uh, I don't know if he's the most credible source, but I, I think he had an interesting insight, which was then confirmed by one of Cohn's law partners, which was that John Anderson, who was the third party candidate that year, got on the liberal ballot in New York State has a complicated ballot with uh, with sort of shadow parties, liberal and conservative. And he split the vote in New York, Anderson, and pulled a lot of would be Carter voters away and delivered the electoral votes to Reagan. And then the law partner of Cohn says he was in Roy Cohn's office when Nancy Reagan called the day after the victory to thank him for getting her husband elected president. So you have two sources focusing on that. And then soon after Reagan takes office, uh, Rupert Murdoch, who had recently acquired the New York Post and uh, endorsed Reagan in New York, it was a very important endorsement for Ronald Reagan. And the Post had not been a conservative paper uh, so much before Murdoch had taken it over. So it was an important uh, conservative endorsement uh, for now President Reagan in the form of payback. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, I was going to say, well, the other thing that, that fascinated me about this period in Roy, Roy Cohn's life, uh, and I alluded this to this before, was his ability to move so easily between uh, sort of New York society, well, society may not even be the right word. This was a pretty decadent time in New York in the 1980s. He's he's going to Studio 54, as you said. He's hanging out with, with Andy Warhol. Uh, these uh, dinner parties that he's having seem a little racy and, and, and decadent. And then at the same time, 
Uh, he's uh, he's invited to the Reagan uh, White House. There are pictures of him in the Oval Office uh, with with President Reagan. Um, what does it say about Cohn's ability to kind of navigate these worlds and also how the culture was then versus now? Cohn was absolutely adept in navigating the social and political worlds. Uh, he had a very famous adage, which was, uh, fuck the law, just tell me who the judge is, which was his way of uh, practicing law, says everything. But he had the ability to phone these judges up. His father had been a judge. And that was the way that machine politics worked in that period. Corruption has morphed. And now corruption sits in the Oval Office, of course, and it emanates from there. And I would argue that Roy Cohn created a president from beyond the grave and a president in his own image. So that says everything. And I think that's probably the motivation behind your, your podcast, which I think is subtitled Scandals in the Trump Era. Well, my movie is showing you the origin story of all of those scandals. But they came from brokering an influence and flouting the rules and creating a special caste of uh, kind of extra legal uh, privilege that the power structure at the time was very used to. And Donald Trump grew very used to because Roy Cohn fixed it all up for him. And he's trying to use now people such as Giuliani and uh, Bill Barr to function as his uh, kind of fractured versions of Roy Cohn to uh, work outside the, uh, the Constitution. And uh, there's always something nefarious going on, as was revealed by, at first, the whistleblower in the Ukrainian scandal. The Ukrainian scandal playbook with uh, the two Ukrainian henchmen and Giuliani as their, uh, you know, their, their overseer is right out of the Roy Cohn playbook. Well, all this is why uh, it, it makes you the perfect skullduggery guest. Um, but before we go, I want to just uh, go through the last kind of sad, pathetic years of Roy Cohn's life where his sexuality catches up on him because he comes down with AIDS. Um, and yet he cannot admit that. He can't admit that he's gay, even when he's pressed by as uh, determined a uh, interrogator as Mike Wallace, as you show in the movie. Just, just walk us through, the, through those last few years of, uh, of Roy Cohn's life. Well, for those who think that Trump will never run out of road, the corollary of this movie about Roy Cohn might bring some good cheer because he did end up running out of road after decades of getting away with everything. You know, politics cleaned up in the post-Watergate era. Uh, New York City became uh, a rich, much richer city, and the bar of New York State got its act together. And in the wake of the Morgenthau indictments, which uh, Cohen had weaseled out of, uh, a lawyer named Marty London became head of the disciplinary committee of the bar and reopened all of the dead files on Cohen's uh, skullduggery and uh, miscreant behavior. And uh, they got him. And they, uh, in the mid 80s, managed to disbar him. But at the same time, he was becoming very ill with uh, complications from HIV AIDS. Now, the irony of this, of course, is, uh, is terrifying. And uh, it's hard to have sympathy for Roy Cohn. But anyone who contracted AIDS in those early years before there was anything close to uh, treatment for it, was confronting an, an unspeakable, uh, horrific death. And it, the irony that this 
gay baiting, closet homosexual supervillain criminal and really emblem of, of self-hating homosexuality, which is why he's uh, the trope for that in Angels of America, dying of a horrific disease and becoming a, a social pariah in the city that he used to really own uh, is, is really exquisite and uh, hard to watch. And Mike Wallace, in his inimitable style, in a 60 Minutes profile in the year, I believe, that Cohn died, 86, puts puts it to him and says, do you have AIDS? And Cohn denies it and says, no, I have liver cancer. Now, at the same time, Cohn, very close to Ronald and Nancy Reagan, as if his hypocrisy couldn't be greater, accepts special treatment from the Reagans, courtesy of the Reagans at the National Institutes of Health, which is conducting early trials in uh, treatments for HIV AIDS. So he's denying he has the disease, it has this horrible record of hypocrisy, but is accepting special treatment for the Reagans, who had the worst record, by the way, in the HIV AIDS uh, uh, years, because they were not talking about the, uh, the plague publicly. So it's a very ugly, very hard to watch demise for Roy Cohn, but he did run out of road. His yeah. last uh, kind of criminal mm. act, which leads to his disbarment, I think, takes place in a hospital room with a dying multimillionaire socialite woman, and he actually dresses up as a male nurse. Tell us what happened. Well, I mean, some of these scandals are so picaresque that they defy belief, but I've confirmed them all with primary sources. So one of the things that did lead to his disbarment was a scandal where he tried to disinherit the family of a liquor magnate named Louis Rosensteel, who was a uh, really like violent anti-communist cohort of Cohn all the way uh, back in the 1950s, very close friend of his. And when uh, Rosenstiel was uh, incompetent and had dementia as a, the result of a stroke and was in the hospital, Cohn, according to uh, Rosenstiel's family, dressed as a male nurse and got him to sign a codicil, which made the family not the inheritors of this estate and gave the estate to Cohn and some of his co-conspirators. That's one of the things that he was uh, disbarred for. And uh, you can't get more Baroque than some of these scandals. (laughs) You know, Matt, I would love to continue to hear these stories, but I'm eager to get downtown to catch uh, the end of uh, today's proceedings in the Roger Stone trial. Roger Stone, of course, being another one of Roy Cohen's protégés. So um, uh, I want to thank you and um, and relive some of uh, the um, uh, the world of Roy Cohen as it's playing out right now in Washington, D.C. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, guys. It was great. Thank you. Thanks to film director Matt Turnauer for joining us on this episode of Buried Treasure. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. Be sure to follow us on social media at Pod. Talk to you soon. Thank you.